Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, May 24th. We begin with our weekly spotlight on Canadian politics. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, joins us with details on her conversation with UCP leadership candidate Danielle Smith and an update on the newly announced Huawei 5G ban in Canada. Inflation has hit everyone and grocery bills continue to climb. We speak with Janet Music from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University on why food prices may be further impacted due to increased challenges by the ag industry. Next, we examine the Battle of Alberta through a different lens. We catch up with a professor of sports performance to discuss the mental aspect of pro sports and how elite athletes have to pay attention to more than just their physical training. And finally, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial has dominated social media feeds, but is the court of public opinion too involved in the hearings? We take a look at the danger of fan culture. This week, Canada joined the other Five Eyes nations by banning Huawei from the next generation of Canada's wireless services. With details, we're joined by the host of the West Block and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Thank you for joining us on a Tuesday morning. Uh, This week, you spoke with Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino about the reasoning behind the barring Huawei from the nation's 5G infrastructure. What do we know at this point, Mercedes? So it's interesting because it's not just 5G, and and this is the part that sort of stuck out to me. Um, It's 4G and 5G. Uh, TELUS has some Huawei 5G, but the other big carriers have kind of been waiting on it. Uh, The 4G is a little bit more widespread within the system. It's older. It is in the process of being replaced by the telecoms, but it significantly increases the cost of, of taking it out. And it sends a stronger message about what they're saying about Huawei, that that it's not just 5G, it's 4G as well. And I should say here, because I've gotten this question from lots of folks who are super curious, no, that does not mean your phone or tablet, if it's made by Huawei, is now banned. That's not considered national telecommunications infrastructure, because you're receiving your own messages on that. They're looking at the big, big systems that transmit to everyone where they say there's national security concerns. Um, There was a few things that were interesting about this as well. Um, ZTE, another Chinese company um, that is involved in telecom has been banned. And and that's not really one people had talked about a lot. Um, The fact that the government says this is based on a national security threat, which raises the question of why does it take so long to ban it when other countries have have banned its participation on the same basis? What did they just find out? And they just keep saying, well, we had to be careful. We had to look into it. So one tends to assume, as we have Senior government sources for years who've told us this was related to the two Michaels being in prison in China. But when I asked the public safety minister about that, he flat out denied it and said, no, I've never seen sort of that kind of a categoric denial thing. It's time to decouple those two. But they're not able to explain what else accounts for the delay um, or why companies won't have to rip it out until 2024. Um, So this is a national security threat that will still be sitting in the system for at least another couple of years. And that in part is because if they just rip all of that out right now, parts of the telecommunication system, especially up north, would go down very quickly. So they have to give companies time to replace it. Uh, But there's sort of this inexplicable gap in them following other Five Eyes countries on this if the decision was not related to the two Michaels that they don't seem to be able to explain. Was there any uh, mention, Mercedes, about the uh, the reaction from China with this final announcement that we just got? 
Yeah, we asked about that because um, you know China denounced it, but often it's not just uh, a denunciation. It's some kind of a ban on a Canadian product, or of course the increased concern that um, China will use hostage diplomacy against other Canadians who are in China. Um, the government said, obviously, you know, they're paying close attention. They wouldn't really say whether they're that worried about retaliation, probably because they're waiting to see what happens. I pressed the minister a little bit about whether there should be a travel advisory for Canadians who are going uh, to China to do business, whether he would feel safe with his family members uh, traveling to China to do business. He insists that everything is being done to protect Canadians, but they wouldn't really say much more than that. Um, obviously, there's always a concern about this. Um, and it was interesting timing, too, because the Canadian government announced this right after China reversed their position on Canadian canola. But, of course, that is more connected to a shortage in supply, um, which is connected to the war in Ukraine, which typically would be producing a lot of canola for the Chinese um, government to, to distribute. So we haven't seen a, any kind of huge retaliation yet, but everyone's kind of holding their breath and waiting for a cyber attack or something. Mercedes, let's switch gears and look at provincial politics. Uh, You had the chance to sit down with UCP leadership hopeful Danielle Smith. Did she outline to you how she plans on uniting the much-fractured UCP party in Alberta? Not a lot of details, but she insists that she's the person that can do this. She says that she believes uh, in in party unity and that everyone can come together, that she thinks that one of the critical mistakes um, that Premier Kenny made was to flip-flop on policies, including things like the vaccine mandate or things that he couldn't really deliver on, um, like the promises uh, around the referendum um, on equalization payments. Of course, there's some interesting issues with that. Um, you know, any premier could have the same problems on the equalization payments because a lot of folks imagine this as being a transfer that the province of Alberta makes to the province of Ottawa and therefore can stop it. But it's not. It's actually in your individual taxes. So it's a very difficult thing to stop without the federal government participating in that uh, in some way. So there's that same risk of overpromise. She also said that um, it was not just a flip-flop with the vaccine mandate issue, but that she didn't believe in the vaccine mandates. And then she wandered into some territory about questioning the efficacy of vaccines. Um, and at one point she asserted that there was an Israeli study that showed there was a disproportionate number of vaccinated people in the hospital. Every study we've seen, um, every major study, certainly in Canada, every medical authority I've talked to has said you are less likely to get sick, less likely to end up in the hospital if you're vaccinated, that it's disproportionately unvaccinated people getting so sick they end up in the hospital. Um, So that kind of surprised me that she would make that assertion. And then when we asked her, but that's not what... Um, doctors and scientists are saying in other parts of the world, including in Israel, which continues to vaccinate its people, um, she didn't really have an answer to that and started talking about natural immunity as, as being something that should be part of a passport. But if the passport's the problem and freedom, how does that solve that? Uh, but there's no question that she is targeting kind of the populist anger and feeling there um, and, and that ours is not the only show she was doing that on. So it's, it wasn't a slip of the tongue. It's obviously a deliberate policy position um, that she is pursuing at this point. Uh, and, you know, I think there's still, uh, you know, a lot of people who don't trust her here because of her crossing the floor previously. But also to, on, when she was on the show with us, she talked about many times how she would never, ever get into the political <laughs> realm again. Did she talk about that? What sort of brought her back to it? 
that was literally my first question to her. And, and by the way, like, I've known Danielle Smith for years. Um, I knew her when I was out in Calgary living here when she was uh, an intern at the Calgary Herald. That's how long <laughs> I've been around and kind of following politics. I wasn't in journalism then. Uh, I was a student, but I, I remember young Danielle Smith, and I sort of watched her career um, from the periphery and, and, and known her for years. Um, and I remember how emphatic she was back in 2015. She would never come back to politics. So I was very curious to know what she felt had changed in politics or what she felt had changed in her um, that had shifted her decision to come back to this environment that many people would argue is actually more polarized and and more difficult than it was in 2015. Um, And we didn't get any specifics in terms of what she felt had changed, but she sort of said she felt it was time to come back, that now was the time um, to to make a return. Um, It'll be very interesting to see, I think, how much people factor that Wild Rose passed into it and how that plays for or against her in Alberta politics has seven years been enough for people to move on. Um, and she did say something interesting, which is uh, you guys will appreciate. She wishes she'd been in talk radio before she became a politician rather than after because you hear so many opinions. Of course, the question is, can you keep that finger on the pulse once you get elected into office? Um, and, and we'll see sort of how well she does against Brian Jean and who else might pop into the field as a contender. Who else is the question? And it's going to be a very interesting several months ahead here in the province. Thanks for your time this morning, Mercedes. Thank you for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Food prices expected to continue to climb as the Canadian agriculture industry prepares for a challenging season. Joining us to talk about it is Janet Music with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Janet. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about the price to transport product, obviously on the rise. We're all seeing increase in gas prices. Now we're hearing fertilizer is becoming an issue for the Canadian agriculture industry. So do we know or can we anticipate how much of a factor all of these things are going to continue to be when we head to the grocery store? You know, you're absolutely right. It's a complicated system that I think a lot of consumers don't appreciate how much actually goes into those products that we just pick off the shelf and kind of throw absentmindedly in our cart. And, you know, the geopolitical situation in Europe right now is really impacting fertilizer, you know, for for farmers across the globe. And a lot of those inputs, uh, you know, Uh, nitrates and nickel and so forth come out of that region. And, you know, it's a significant input when it comes to crop yields. Uh, You know, I don't have to explain that to a lot of people on the prairies are very well aware of that. And so it's a big X factor right now as to how much that's going to impact, uh, you know, food costs in the fall. But certainly the numbers came out last week. They aren't great. Uh, You know, some cuts of beef up almost 53%. That's significant. All right. What does this mean for food producers? It's going to be a tough season. What about their ability to export product? Uh, Is that going to have an impact on our producers? Right. And as food circulates around and on the food supply chain, you know, as we bring it in and we ship it out, all of that is reliant on the cost of of energy input, so gas. And and gas prices have been rising steadily over the last six months. And, you know, we really don't have any indication to say, well, that's going to stop in the short term. You know, but, you know, 
as we get into the onset of the growing season here in Canada, we do expect to see some of those local foods to kind of decrease a bit in price. As people, you know, they kind of buy directly from the producer, a lot of farmers markets or roadside stands or CSA boxes, what have you, because it's we're going into the good time to get really good fresh local food but you know a lot of that is contingent on the weather cooperating as well and so as you know the growing season the last year has not been great so we're really hopeful for you know mother nature to cooperate with us this year and get good yields so fresh produce might be a little more affordable little less expensive through the summer but you know you're an expert in this world are we anticipating really much of a change in anything else at the grocery store In the short term and probably in the medium term, we're really not expecting a lot of decreases across the board, which is not great news for most people. it's it's really remains to be seen how that war in the Ukraine is going to play out. It's it's ongoing, which I think a lot of people are still surprised about, you know. And then of course, as we you know, there's still labor issues in the supply chain uh, that were brought on by COVID nineteen, the so called Great Resignation, as people you know, move around jobs to try to get the best situation for themselves. And and inflation in general is high. So, you know, I don't really have a good news story to kind of pull out of all of these kind of factors that are impacting food prices. How does it compare? I'm assuming this isn't a Canada-specific issue, Janet. Is this an issue in many countries? You're absolutely right. It is. It's not a Canada-wide issue and or a, a Canada-only issue, I should say. Uh, you know, Western countries across the globe, the United States, the UK, throughout Europe, Australia, are all experiencing uh, increased inflation at a rate that is, you know, unprecedented to this generation, probably unfamiliar to a lot of people, unless you can think way back to the 90s. Uh, you know, some of us can And so when it comes to, you know, what are some of the things that the Canadian government can do or Canadian farmers can do? Well, not a whole lot because it's a global issue. And so we're, you know, remains to be seen how how this is going to play out on a global stage. And unfortunately, you know, it plays out in our carts at the grocery store individually at the household level. Janet, you know, any thoughts, any tips or tricks that you might be able to offer up to the listeners uh, how people can try and keep their grocery bills as low as possible in what we're seeing right now? Yeah, you know, we get a lot of, I get a lot of emails from, from consumers and listeners who, you know, have their own kind of tricks that they do. And a lot of people are, are kind of switching out to chicken. It's a bit cheaper, which is interesting. And so is pork. So, and a lot of people are planting gardens. So we know people are, are gardening for the first time. About 10% of people are going to garden or try to grow something. Um, you know, that, that isn't really a money-saving kind of endeavor, but, you know, it makes feel makes people feel like they have a bit more control over their food supply. You know, this commitment to supporting local farmers or, or out here, you know, supporting local fishers and, and just trying to uh, take a bit more control over the food supply because I think people feel like, our food security and their right to feel this way is is really reliant on on globalization and maybe we need to have a bigger conversation about you know is that is that the way we want to have our food security 
Janet, could part of the issue be that we have not had problems with food security in our nation for so long? Many countries have dealt with this for, for a number of years, and, and this is just, you know, our turn to, to learn how to deal with it and make these changes to uh, stretch our dollars further? Yeah, you know, there is a percentage of Canadians that are food insecure. You know, it varies by province. Uh, of course, up north, they experience food insecurity in a way that we don't uh, down in the more temperate uh, provinces. Uh, you know, and I think COVID-19, especially during that first lockdown, really scared consumers because, you know, that uncertainty about is the food going to be able to come into the country? You know, you know, is the virus on the food? When I go to the superstore or the grocery store, am I going to take it home with me? And I think that really opened a lot of people's eyes to where our food comes from and how complicated this system is. And it really is reliant on on human beings to, to produce it and to ship it. And if, if that's you know, that, that can be quite frightening when you start to think about it because we take it for granted. We're very lucky here in Canada that we can, you know, eat tropical fruit all year round and we have a very wide variety of different meats and, and, and dairy. But, you know, in the long run, I think now as wages don't keep track with inflation, more of us become more food insecure and that, that's not a very comfortable place to be in as consumers. Appreciate you joining us this morning and sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much, Janet. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Janet Music, Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. How do pro athletes deal with stress and keep their cool during high-pressure games? Ahead of Game 4 of the Battle of Alberta, we are joined by Dr. Amber Moswich, Associate Professor of Sports Performance at the University of Alberta, with insight into the psychology of athletes. Good morning to you, Dr. Moswich. Good morning. Well, we're heading into the big one, Game 4. It has been a, a tense series, particularly for Flames fans. I'm wondering, how do players manage stress during these high-pressure games? What are they doing off the ice? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it does take a lot of mental preparation, both on and off the ice, especially during these high-pressure games. Um, my uh, thought is that, you know, athletes, they do prepare in unique and individualized ways, but um, most of those high-level athletes, they would have um, an individualized plan that they're doing to ensure that they are able to focus um, manage that stress and get themselves to the activation level that they need to play at their best come game time. Now, sports psychology, kind of, you know, that, that mental side of it is a, sort of a newer phenomenon in the athletic world. You know, okay, so they do things off the ice, but they must practice things on the ice as well to try and keep themselves sort of under control when things start to get feisty. Absolutely. And um, the big push right now within the sports psychology domain is to embed these mental skills into both uh, competition routines, but also practice routines, which is so important because you, you need to train the way you want to compete. So they would be using these same skills in practice and in quote unquote lower stakes games so that they're ready to go when the pressure does get higher. Flames dropping their last two, kind of a big deal as we go into tonight's game. How do they reset and pull themselves out of this hole? You know, perhaps what sorts of things could Coach Sutter say to, to, to bring them out of this hole? Yeah, well, in terms of um, mental preparation and, and resetting, 
Um, definitely setting some goals and ensuring that focus is where it needs to be. Um, we always tell athletes, you, you focus on the things that you can control. You only have so much attentional capacity, so focusing on the things that you can control, those, those key plays, those key plans, um, and then having a plan to quickly refocus if something does go wrong. I mean, there's going to be other shifts. There's going to be other periods. So having a, a plan to help you refocus, whether that be a keyword, um, perhaps even some kind of breathing exercise, some visualization, something to cue you to bring that focus back so your attention's where it needs to be. Dr. Moswich, anything you can kind of translate from the world of sports and, and what these athletes are taught and how they're prepped and, and the mentality and the mental games they use, anything you can sort of translate into the everyday life for the rest of us, maybe when it comes to perhaps dealing with stress, for example? Absolutely. So much of what athletes will do in the sporting arena is transferable to other performance domains, and we find ourselves there all the time. Um, one of the big ones is, uh, we all differ in how we respond to stress and the interpretation of what that stressor means and what we can do can actually play a big role in how we respond to it. So thinking about things in terms of a challenge that, as opposed to more of a threat can actually change the way um, our, our mindset is focused to it, but also how we respond physiologically. And um, that can play a big role in our emotional reaction and the intensity of that reaction moving forward. So that focus of challenge versus threat is is a big tip. Dr. Moswich, they say it's not just the NHL playoffs, but any of these professional leagues that the playoffs like a whole different season. It doesn't matter what happened during the regular season. We're in the playoffs. I'm wondering how much of that is mental and how much of that can be attributed to stress because we're playing the same game often against the same you know uh, uh, opponents how much is mental uh, absolutely there's probably a lot that is mental and then when we think about the stress and coping process um, we have what's called an appraisal process of the situation and the first sort of question that is answered is what is at stake and for many athletes and many performers what is at stake is it's much higher during the playoffs. And uh, the consequences of, of mistakes or poor performances um, is often heightened and often uh, under intense scrutiny as well. Um, so it, 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 is, it is true when they say it's, it's like a whole different season um, because the stakes are indeed higher. It's fascinating. We thank you for your take on it this morning. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Amber Moswich is the Associate Professor of Sports Performance at the University of Alberta. And you know, it is that sort of mental game is something they're starting to teach young athletes as well, long before they ever get to the pros. And I think it's important because, you know, it's learning to cope not only in the athletic world, but in the, it does, as the doctor said, translates into our own world, right? And dealing with stress and, and anxiety, well, we need that these yeah. days. And we can look at the competitive nature, particularly when it comes to kids' sports, saying maybe we take it too seriously. But the fact of the matter is the genie's been let out of the bottle. And we take it more seriously, not just... You know, with the mental aspect, but dry land training for hockey during the summer months oh, for, yeah. for all these different aspects. And we've got the mental now as part of the arsenal. Mm-hmm. And, and not uh, just hockey, but ball, yeah. all, all sports. And it can be stressful, but at the same time, if you can, like Dr. Moss, which said, almost use it to your advantage and kind yeah. of harness it. Yeah.
It could help in other areas of your life as well. Maybe we're helping them with coping skills down the line, right? The Amber Heard, Johnny Depp defamation trial is all over TikTok and social media. But is the court of public opinion dominating the narrative of the trial? And what are the dangers of fan culture in this case? Joining us to discuss is Maddie Brockbank, PhD student and Vanier scholar in social work at McMaster University. Good morning to you, Maddie. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's interesting that this case is so dominating on social media. And I mean, I've got young kids at home and they are even into it because it's just everywhere. So why do you think that this has really kind of taken off on social media more so than anything else before it? I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. I think a lot of people have written extensively about this being a pretty massive backlash to the Me Too movement, which took um, a lot of you know, momentum in 2017 and people have an investment in this idea that women may be lying about violence or that their favorite actors or celebrities might be falsely accused of violence. So there's been a real interest and I think it's just a crockpot of tension that is really uh, coming to the forefront in some very troubling ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would say you say interest, but are there dangers of fan culture crossing over to the court of public opinion? Yes, I really think so. I mean, I wrote an article for the Conversation Canada that just spoke about the dangers of fan culture where people are developing something that's called parasocial relationships, which refer to one-sided, intimate, emotional bonds with public figures who don't know they exist. And this is resulting in people feeling really compelled to passionately defend one or both parties because of this relationship. And then also... Um, an investment in like understanding the intricacies of the case. People are looking at the evidence and making their own decisions, which uh, we haven't seen in a gender-based violence case before, I don't think, on this scale. And I think it's concerning, too, because let's face it, TikTok is for the younger crowd, right? So you've got young people who really are invested in this and probably for a lot of the wrong reasons. And as you said, too, not doing any background, not doing any research into exactly, you know, the accusations that are involved here. All of this, they're just kind of jumping on board the fan wagon. Exactly. And I think somebody wrote about it and it was really powerful, this idea that a lot of people are creating memes and TikToks and sketches about it almost in an effort just to go viral, not to actually make a commentary on the case, which is is troubling. Are we at a risk, Maddie, of of, of setting back, you know, somebody coming forward, man or woman, uh, that they've uh, been in an abusive relationship after watching something like this? I really think so. A lot of survivors have written op-eds and pieces about how the discourse emerging from this trial have really put survivors in a position where they might fear coming forward, men, women, and non-binary folks, regardless of gender, because they're seeing this mass ridicule, this abuse online. It might really deter someone from telling their story. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's having real material sociopolitical implications for folks. Yeah, I mean, when fandom kind of takes, you know, the most important priority over potential violence, it it really does start to get a little scary. I think it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't bode well for young people who really aren't understanding exactly what's at stake here. Exactly, and I think it's really, I spoke about it in my article a bit, but it's really making distinctions about what violence counts, where uh, people are really upset about the idea of physical or domestic violence, but they see online abuse and harassment as acceptable because if this person has been declared a liar by the majority, harassment is acceptable because she deserves it or something. Um, And I think that's really troubling when we draw these 
stark contrast between what violence is legitimate and what can be excused. Maddie, thanks for your time this morning. We'll direct people to theconversation.com to read your article. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's Maddie Brockbank, PhD student and a Vanier scholar the social work, uh, of social work rather, at McMaster University. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.